What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the Sunday Recap. This is a very unique episode of the Sunday Recap because uh, this is just me, uh, Chris, by myself. <laughs> and the reason for that is because this week is Thanksgiving week, and we are, um, you know, some of us are on vacation, some of us have a lot going on. Um, Mitch, for example, is going to be preaching this week, so he's preparing for that. And so we've got a, a, a kind of a unique episode today, and it's going to be a little bit shorter. Basically, what we want to do is we want to go back and look at the passage that uh, Pastor Scott preached on this last week. I'd love to just read the passage and then focus in on one particular part of it and read to you a uh, a little bit of commentary from a, a a pastor that maybe you have not heard of. And I'd love to just read this to you. And and, uh, and my hope and my prayer with this is that it will just bless you as you uh, as you focus and and listen on the words of this pastor who um, is really trying to encourage his church and his readers with the words that he's speaking with this. So uh, that's the plan for today. Before we get rolling with that, I do want to remind you that the Christmas outreach is well underway right now. Our Christmas outreach is a chance for us as a church to really bless people in our community who um, maybe won't, won't be able to provide Christmas presents for their families this year. Uh, what we do is we, uh, you as a family or maybe even as a D group, can sponsor a family or a child. And what we ask you to do is to get Christmas presents for them. Um, you'll get you'll get a list of the things that they want and their sizes and all that sort of stuff. And, and you'll get a chance to go and get, get presents for them. This is a great thing to do with your family to take, you know, one of the things I know when, when my family has done this in the past, we take our kids shopping with us and we get to pick out fun things. So you may not be able to do that this year. Maybe it's going to be Amazon shopping, you know, how, how it goes. But um, but this is a great chance for you to do something where you're going to um, do this with maybe with your family or with your D group and really bless another family. So if you want more information about that, we want to encourage you to go ahead and just email Pastor Mitch at mitch at stonescrossing.com and ask him about this year's Christmas outreach. And he will, he will get you all the information that you need about that. Well, this last week, Pastor Scott went into the book of Acts and looked at the conversion of three different people in the city of Philippi. This is a really interesting story because the three people who are converted in this city are very different and they're, they're all very different types of people. And what's fascinating about this story, too, is that they're all people who are um, kind of um, marginalized, kind of, kind of people that, that, the, that the world would not consider to be sort of your, your up-and-comers or, or your most popular type of people. You have the story of a woman who is a Jewish woman named Lydia who's converted, the story of a slave girl who is being really used to make money from her slave owners, and then the story of the Philippian jailer. And so what we're going to do here is I just want to read to you this passage from Acts chapter 16, and then we're going to look at this commentary uh, that I'll, I'll read afterwards. So here's, this, here's the text from Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, 
and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is just an incredible story of how truly how God is 
beginning the church in Philippi by calling these three people, three people who don't know each other. They're so different from one another. And each one of them is really uh, someone who should not be held in high regard in that in this culture. You have a, a Jewish woman, Lydia. Um, you have a slave girl. And then you have a Gentile, a Philippian jailer. And what we're going to see here, as I, I, I want to I want to read to you this um, this little little commentary from a pastor named James Montgomery Boyce, and in this commentary on the Book of Acts, he's mostly in this section he's commenting on how God is at work in the prison. And I and I, I when I was reading this, I was like, man, there are like three really great things in this uh, little commentary that I would love for you to uh, just to pick up on as we're reading this together. So here we go. Let's go ahead and dig into this. What did Paul and Silas do in the prison? If they were like many normal Christians, they would have said, we should never have started out on this journey. It's too hard to bring the gospel to Europe. If they had been more theological, maybe they would have said, I suppose these people are just not among the elect. As soon as we can, we better get out of here and go somewhere that God is going to bless. And if they were like many of our contemporaries, they would have said, God wants us to be happy and we're not happy sitting here in the stock, so let's find a place where we can be happy. They didn't say any of those things. Instead, Paul and Silas spent the night praying and singing praises to God. And as they sang and praised God, the other prisoners who might have been complaining beforehand became quiet, just as the believing thief who was crucified on the cross next to Jesus did. And as they listened, they began to learn something about the God who had sent Paul and Silas to their city. Later, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, his dominant note was rejoicing. Paul said to these Christians, whom of some had perhaps even been in the prison that evening, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That's Philippians 4.4. 4. It has been pointed out that Paul speaks of rejoicing more in this short letter to the Philippians other than any other of his epistles. In view of what had happened, we can see that these were no mere platitudes on Paul's part. Rather, we see that the man who told others to rejoice and learn to rejoice himself because his heart and mind were so filled with what God was doing and with the blessing of God in his life. Paul regarded the privilege of taking the gospel to areas of the world where it was not known as being so great that it blotted out the discomfort from the beating. We would have said, things are so bad that nothing good will ever come of this. Yet it was in Paul and Silas's extremity that God seemed to act. God made this a wonderful opportunity. When the earthquake came and the chains fell off the prisoners so that Paul and the others could have escaped if they had wished to do so, the jailer who had been awakened by the earthquake rushed toward the prison thinking that the prisoners were all gone. He was ready to kill himself because he was a Roman jailer and knew that the penalty for a Roman soldier who allowed a prisoner to escape was death. Therefore, a Roman guard, even under the, the severest enemy attack, would not leave his post. If he did, he would be executed afterwards. 
Paul's guards had similar concerns during the shipwreck later when Paul was being taken to Rome in Acts 27. Someone has commented on the Philippian jailer's near suicide by saying this, it shows what a violent type of person he was. I, don't, I do not think that that was it at all. I think he was rightfully afraid and was about to do what under the circumstances and by Roman military code was the proper action. Paul shouted out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer replied with what is one of the greatest and most profitable questions of all time. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I heard a sermon on this text once in which the preacher wrestled with the meaning of that question for a long time. What did the jailer mean, he asked. I mean, obviously he was fearing for his life. Did he mean, what must I do to attain eternal salvation? Or did he mean, by contrast, what must I do to be safe? The preacher sided with the latter possibility. He said, the context indicates that what the jailer was afraid of was that he was going to lose his life. He wanted Paul to tell him how he might be able to be safe physically and not die. It's pertinent to the question, I think, that earlier in the story, the slave girl used the same word the Philippian jailer used when he said, what must I do to be saved? Our translation has him using the verb form, but she used a noun. But it was the same word when she declared by the power of the demon, these men are telling you the way of salvation. Did the jailer know the earlier testimony of this woman? Undoubtedly he did. This was a small town, the kind of town in which stories like this would spread rapidly. Besides, these men had been put into his custody. He must have asked why. And he would have been told that the slave girl had said that these men knew the way of salvation and that they had acted as messengers of salvation when they had cast the demon out of her. When the jailer came in the dark hours of this night, trembling before Paul and Silas in the posture of a suppliant, asking, what must I do to be saved? I think it is clear that he was thinking of eternal salvation. Regardless of how the jailer intended the question, Paul answered in the right way. The jailer might have been confused about a lot of things. He might have mixed up his physical salvation and his spiritual salvation. However, when Paul answered the question, he answered it in spiritual terms, stressing the salvation of his soul, which was of greatest importance. Furthermore, he answered it clearly. He said to the man, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And I'm so glad he answered so directly. Charles Hayden Spurgeon preached a sermon once in which he referred to the cities of refuge in Israel in Old Testament times. When the Jews conquered Canaan, they were told to establish cities of refuge to which a person who had accidentally killed somebody and who was therefore subject to the law of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or revenge on the part of the relatives of the person who had been killed, could run to and be safe. Spurgeon indicated how the law told the Jews to make sure these roads were well cared for and were unobstructed. If any stones had fallen onto these roads, they were to be removed. If any bridges had fallen down, they were to rebuild the bridges. Furthermore, they were to set up signs to mark the way so that under the stringent pressure of the moment, a fleeing fugitive pursued perhaps by an avenger might by these signs actually make it to the city safely. 
Spurgeon said that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing here. He was making the way to the city of refuge plain to the jailer. And notice what Paul did not suggest. He did not suggest counseling. He did not say to the jailer, I realize that you're asking a very important question, but before I answer, it's important, first of all, to understand yourself and to know so that you will know the terms by which you are asking the question. You have to begin with yourself, and after you've done that, we will talk about the gospel. No. He did not give a lecture on theology. He did not explore the significance of the jailer's religious terms. He did not talk about the sacraments. He didn't even talk about the church. Those things could be dealt with in time. But this was not the time. The man was asking about salvation, and the apostle replied directly, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Did the jailer understand what that meant? He must have understood some of it because he believed and was baptized. Did he understand all of what what it meant? Well, probably not. I'm not sure we do, even with all the teaching that we have received. But what he did know, he believed. And Jesus saved him. Besides, not only was he converted in the course of the evening, his entire family was converted too. This was the third of three striking conversions that Luke records as having taken place at Philippi. Those with Lydia, the businesswoman, the unnamed slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. John Stott calls attention to the fact that the head of a Jewish household would use the same prayer every morning, giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. But here were representatives of these three despised categories, redeemed and united in Christ. For truly, as Paul had recently written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's so good. There's so many good things in here, but I just want to point out three things that he said that I thought were just excellent. The first was right at the beginning where he was really just commenting on the idea of the the way that that we might react to certain things here. He said, what did Paul and Silas do in, in while they were in prison, right? Did they say, oh man, we never should have done this? <laughs> did they complain about their circumstances? Did they think about it in this way of saying, let's just go somewhere else? They didn't, or or, or, or even in this way where they said, uh, he said, oh, God wants us to be happy and we're not happy here, so let's go find some place where we can be happy. He didn't say any of those things. He, he said that they spent the night hours praying and singing praises to God. And so often I think that we think about the circumstances that we're in as maybe this is not where God wants us to be. Maybe this is where Um, we're not happy in the circumstances that we have right now, that maybe we should never have started on this journey and it's too hard. Maybe we just need to go somewhere else. And what, what he points out here is that the, really the right answer to this is that we should just spend time uh, praying, singing praises to God, being in his presence, because no matter where we are, God is there also. And that truly, if we believe in, 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 in God's sovereignty, if we believe that, that he is really in control of the circumstances around us, that we are exactly where he wants us to be, whether that's a place that we like or not. 
And if that's the case, then then man, we can we can praise God and just pray, say, God, how can I glorify you? How can I honor you in this situation that I find myself in right now? The second thing I thought that was really neat was he was, he was talking about how clear Paul made the way to salvation. And he he tied that together with the idea of the the cities of refuge. Now, if you don't know about the cities of refuge, that's something definitely to check out. It's in the Old Testament um, in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. It's this idea that there were these cities that were designated in the nation of Israel so that if someone accidentally killed somebody and there was a family member who would, who was called an avenger that would come after them to kill them, kind of do the eye for an eye sort of a thing, that this person could actually run to the city and they could find safety in this city. And there was, it's just a really neat law that's all part of this. But what's what's so cool is how, how he pointed out how uh, Charles Spurgeon actually said that there were these, you know, um, cleared paths to these cities of refuge and even signage that was to uh, there to help the the person flee to that city. And so the idea there is that the way to salvation, the way to this refuge is actually made very clear. And I think there's important implications there for us when we talk about presenting the gospel to people. We don't want to be, um, kind of add all this other stuff to it. We don't want to take them down this road of uh, what he suggested, down, down a road of counseling, down a road on a lecture on theology, down a road of talking about the sacraments or the church, because all of those things, truly what, what he said, all those things will be dealt with in time. What we need to do is make very clear just the way of salvation, um, that all that we have to do is trust in the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ offers, that he died on the cross for us in our place. And that by doing so, we receive his righteousness so that we can stand justified before God on the day of judgment. And that's the way of salvation. So like, if we can help people just to see that very clearly, that takes all that other stuff out of the way and removes all, all of that. And, and what's, what's wonderful about that is that really it moves the, the Holy Spirit then to be able to work in that person's life so that eventually they'll get all that other stuff too. But all, all that we need to do is present the gospel. And I thought that was a really great point as well. Finally, the third point that I thought was really great was when he got to the end here and he talked about the, the unity that these three people, these three new converts in the city of Philippi now have with one another in Christ. And what a really cool, uh, really, really amazing situation this is. In fact, the way that he even puts it here is that these were despised categories of people. He pointed out from a message that John Stott had done that talked about how a, a head of a Jewish household, so this would be like the, the father of a Jewish household, would pray this prayer giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That is, I mean, it's shocking for us to hear that. Uh, to hear those sorts of categories and that people would actually praise God that they were not one of those things. But here, what I think is so, so fascinating is that this is exactly who God decided to use to begin the church in Philippi, a Gentile, the Philippian jailer, a woman named Lydia, and a slave girl. What an incredible thing. And now these, these people who are now redeemed, they are now uh, made new in Christ, but they are also united with one another in Christ. They are made brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can just imagine that maybe when Paul visits 
and that church is that church is starting that church is starting to grow that these three people become some of the core members of this church i mean can you just imagine that what 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 that would have been like to see this newly formed church with these people who typically would never cross paths cross cross paths with one another but that in this moment what they're doing is they're meeting together in a church together praising god together praying with one another really enjoying the the unity that they have with one another in Christ Jesus and that is an incredible gift it makes me start to think about maybe the people in my life or the people maybe in your life that that we don't necessarily cross paths with cross paths with people that we don't uh, typically talk to spend time with people that maybe seem to be outside of our sphere of influence or our, our regular circles, but that maybe we have been united with them in Christ. And so with that in mind, maybe we should. Maybe we need to spend some more time with people uh, that are different than us to share the gospel with those people. And if they are Christians, that we might that we might even celebrate the unity that we have with one another. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. And I think it just points us to the, really to the end, to when all of us are in heaven together. And what the scriptures tell us in Revelation is that, is that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will all be there worshiping God together. Just a little picture of what heaven is going to be like here in this little church in Philippi. Well, that's all we have for you for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be back on track. Mitch, Ariel, and I will all be back as we unpack Mitch's sermon, which will be the final sermon of the This Is My Story series. And he's going to be preaching on uh, an another story from the book of Acts on the conversion of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. So you are not going to want to miss that this Sunday at church. So make sure to watch online or come in person this Sunday. And then we will look forward to having you back next week on the Sunday recap. We'll see you then.